Welcome to the Beekeeper's Corner Podcast. August 30th, 2021, episode 201. They say it's your. Hello, everyone. Back once more for another episode of the Beekeeper's Corner Podcast. I'm Kevin England, turning the corner for the next century of shows. And, well, for this one, I have a good idea that we're going to have a little fun. Lots of stuff on the pile to cover and a feeling for the gift of gab tonight. So, primed to talk about, well, beekeeping. Because, by golly, this is a beekeeping podcast. Go figure. Hot, humid, many soaking rains. That's characterized our summer so far. And as we head into the Labor Day weekend, the forecast is for yet another heavy rainfall event with the remnants of Hurricane Ida set to roll in on Wednesday. Ah, tired of this, but I've noticed when I was looking outside how lush and green everything is, and that has translated to an early break to the fall nectar flow. I can see that one of the honey supers I have on my Russian hive which was foundation is already built out and they're starting to cap it. So that's interesting. And the goldenrod is out in the fields. The asters are up and it feels like fall is going to be bountiful here in some parts of New Jersey. What have we got on tap for this episode? Filtering honey. It's that time of year. Filtering melted wax cappings. Our kitchen looks like a candle factory upstairs. Irritated eyes. What might that have to do with beekeeping and what my doctor told me to do about it? Asian giant hornets. The first 2021 activity is in play. A theory shared about why do queens lay in queen cups? Actually, two ideas on the docket. Just how much honey is in a honey frame? The world may never know. You cannot come home from EAS empty-handed. I have a new product to talk about. Feeding bees, tis the season. A not-so-new, but quite novel tactic to mull over. And, of course, the local hive report. Let's say we get started. Let's head to roundtable number one. Roundtable number one, I call this one filter time. It's about cleaning your filters for extraction. Maybe I'm a little too late, but I know that a lot of beekeepers, for whatever reason, wait till August when it starts to cool off a little bit to do their extractions. What am I speaking of? When you strain your honey through a sieve, it is inevitable that the sieve is going to get covered with wax particles, especially if you, you know, have uncapped it and the wax is flowing through. When it comes time to clean that off, the tip is use cold water, not hot water. It seems counterintuitive because all our lives when we wash things in hot, soapy water, you would think you would clean something like that that's sticky with honey, but it's not the honey that's the problem, it's the wax. And so many people, especially beginners, and sorry, I'm just going to say this out loud so everybody heard it, 
use hot water and they melt that wax into the sieve and it clogs the filter up and it becomes a problem when you go to use it next time. The other bad news is they use hot water from their tap and the wax that does melt, some of it goes down and it clogs your drains up. You never want to put hot water wax into your plumbing system. Instead of hot water, you want to take your filters outside and use your hose. Turn them over and spray them from the bottom. Because obviously if you spray from the center, you can blast it out, but it's not going to go through the screen. But if you spray it from the bottom, you could dislodge it. So the first thing to do is spray it all from the bottom and wash the honey off. It washes off with cold water. That's easy enough. And then if you turn it back over, you can scrub it out a little or rub it out a little. Just You're not trying to rub it through the screen. You're just trying to break anything that happens to be stuck and then turn it over and spray it again. Now one of the things we do commonly when we finish harvesting is we take our sieve and all the little crumbs, especially if you do something like crush and strain, we put it outside and we let the bees clean the honey off of the screen. And when they do that, they tend to also get on those wax bits and they chew them up and free them up and it becomes flaky and easy to take off. So when you turn the filter over, a lot of it just falls out like particles and then you could spray it. So this is the tip. Cold water. I'm in the cold water camp. Now, if you did, for whatever reason, use hot water, which is, you know, pretty common. People have done that. Oops. What do you do to fix that? How do you get your screen cleaned out so that it will flow? Because what happens is, if you went down to each of the tiny holes, they're basically a square and a mesh, the wax will melt and it'll go into the corner edges of those holes and basically close the hole. The little center circle is open, but it's clogged. It doesn't filter anymore in the way that you want. It becomes a fine, fine, fine mesh filter instead. You could take your sieve and dunk it in a restaurant pot full of hot water. And as you dunk it, if the water is hot enough, 212 for boiling, it's 145 to melt wax, the wax will float to the surface. You're going to skim the wax off and pull the sieve out. Take it outside, let it cool off, rub it, and wash it off. And keep repeating that process until you've re-melted all the wax off. Now, don't put it in that hot water melt the wax and then pull the sieve back up through it because you just redeposit it all. You do need to do that skim part but if you do that a couple cycles you can get the wax out of that device. So if you've made that mistake that's how you do it. Now again, duh, don't pour that into your drain. <laughs> Go pour it outside somewhere. So filter time. How to clean your filters. Cold water from the bottom. Hopefully that helps. Uh, Kevin moment. I'll talk about something about extracting. This is the time of year where you need to make sure you get whatever honey you're going to extract off your hives. The reason being is you have to think about the biology of the bees going into winter. From 
July, August, where the dearth starts to come, where the bees slow down, all the way through to the end of October, the bees are assessing their stores and they're building their winter stores. If they're in the colony and they have a honey super above them with plenty of honey, it might change whether they're going to go out and forage. If you took those honey supers off, then what would they do? They'd realize they don't have that anymore and they'd assess whether they need more honey and or you could feed them. I think the other side effect of that is when you pull the honey off, whatever honey they're going to collect in the fall, they're going to store above them. That's typically where they put it. And that will create that honeydome over the top box and drive the queen to go down in the bottom box. And that's to me, right, right way, traditional way of thinking, the best way to go into winter. The bees are down below when they eventually get to 45 degrees and they come on the cluster. They have the honey above them and over time as they need it, they can work up into the honey. If you don't pull your honey off your hive, you're not driving that dynamic to occur and you'll find that in early December, maybe they're up under the roof because they thought they were going to have honey above them, but in September, October, you took it from them. So think through all that stuff. And if you haven't done your extraction, get that honey off. Even if you take it off and, you know, store it some way. That's a topic for another time. Roundtable number two. Call this one filter time too. <laughs> this one's about filtering wax. I figured it might as well bundle these two together. So while on the topic of filtering, I had this in the queue and now it seems as good a time as ever to bring it up. When it comes to extraction, one of the more common questions is, what do I do with the wax? More specifically, that often leads to different discussions about how to render wax and get it clean. You know, we've covered this topic on a few occasions over the years especially on episode 50 where we reviewed a process from Charlie Ilsley on rendering wax to get it clean. In a nutshell, common practices employ boiling the wax in water, letting it cool, and then the striations that occur when it cools means that the wax floats to the top, the debris goes into the bottom of the pot, and sometimes it's often coated on the bottom surface with debris that you scrape off to the best of your ability to try and get to the clean wax. Inevitably though, it always ends up with some dirty debris on the bottom and you have to come through and filter it. This is where this topic relevance comes to pass. That last filter operation is sometimes confusing because, well, what's the best way to strip the last remnants of contamination out of the wax to make it pristine? I recently came across something that I found interesting and I believe it's going to serve well for that task. The device is a combination stainless steel cone stand and filter system. The one I'm speaking of comes from the restaurant industry. The purpose for it in that trade is to filter cooking oil. At the end of the day, restaurants often use different contraptions to filter their fry oil so that they could reuse it again. And they take a restaurant pot of hot oil they pour the oil through these cone filters to strain out any of the fry bits so it doesn't taint the oil and they reuse the oil the next day. Cooking oil and 
melted beeswax property wise are pretty similar and I think that this stand would be a good addition to anybody and if you think about the way they work they're not too dissimilar from the honey filter sieves that I was just talking about these devices have wings that allow this cone stand to sit over a pot and it stays put so you can safely pour hot wax or oil if you ever wanted to do that through the filtering system the filters for this system are rayon cloth filters and the images of them remind me of the filters I have for my Chemex coffee pour over rig. I'll put a link in the show notes to the rig I found, the device of which there are many variations if you start looking around, is a stand that sits over a restaurant pot and it comes with the filters or you can go buy them separately if you need to replenish them. The one I found is called the Culinary Depot Fry Filter 10 inch stand and it comes with a 10 pack of filter cones. Last word on this if it's not obvious, when rendering wax be sure to find some old pots and pans. Do not use your regular stuff in your kitchen. Whatever you employ for these type of things should be dedicated to the effort and it bears repeating that you should not pour hot water wax into your plumbing system. I've detailed in the past that we have been using our solar wax melter and doing a good job at trying to, you know, get everything processed while there's proper solar available to melt the wax. Sometimes, however, you find yourself trying to render wax in the days where, at least for us, solar is not in play. For those days, you have to turn to a system like the one Charlie shared or one that you have come upon that involves melting and filtering on the stovetop and for that I think this stand filter combination might be a useful addition. Look for a link in the show notes to an example from Amazon. Roundtable number three I call this one Doctor My Eyes. It's about effects that irritate your eyeballs. I wanted to call out something that perhaps you, as a beekeeper, have not maybe made the connection on. And once you hear this, you might put two and two together. As an IT person, I spend an inordinate amount of time in front of computer screens. I personally have invested in screens that have high refresh rates and take prudent breaks when I think to rest my eyes. Still, there are days when I suffer fatigue or discomfort. My eyes are red, burning, irritated. Is it a computer screen causing this issue? Mayhaps, but sometimes we miss the obvious. And I want you to think about this. What of a Monday morning after working bees during the weekend and without having stared at computer screens, you find yourself in that same situation, dry, irritated eyes, staring back at you in the mirror is a puffy red face. What's that about? I don't know about you, but I personally suffer from some pollen allergies. Heck, if you don't suffer typically from pollen irritations, you could find yourself out in those days where your automobile is dusted yellow and you're going to have pollen problems. That's what it typically takes for me to have some issues. General rent of the mill, I don't have that problem. And just about everyone I can imagine experiences some irritation in those periods where the pollen is just call, falling like snow 
allergies notwithstanding. Taking this to that point, consider working beehives, especially in the summer. You're hot, you're sweating, and your fingers are touching the frames, and you're moving boxes, you're handling a hive tool that's coming into contact with the comb, and basically all of the interior surfaces are on your hands. Now sweat's rolling down your eyes, you're rubbing, touching, wiping your face. Now a lot of times you have a veil, but sometimes you pull it back, and the first thing you do is wipe all that sweat off. It's highly plausible that one of the first things you're going to do is rub your eyes. Rub your, your eyebrows, that entire face area. Fast forward to 12 hours later and your eyes are itchy, burning, dry, swollen, red, or any other symptoms. It is likely that micro particles of pollen were rubbed directly into the moist parts of your eyeballs, of your eyelids. And I chalk this up to out of sight, out of mind. But once you know, I've just told you this, now you think back to those times when you had this issue and you think to yourself, hmm, I just made two and two come together. Now the first defense is a good offense. Don't get yourself into trouble by wiping your face. Try to be conscientious when you take your veil off, not to rub your face. I know some folks who have taken to bringing fresh water out, they rinse their hands off and then they use something to clean their face off. Or maybe you have a clean t-shirt rag and you dip it in the water and you wipe your face and wipe your hands. Now, you know, once it's contaminated, don't wipe your face again, but you get the gist. Good offense. What do you do on those mornings you wake up and your eyes are swollen and puffy and there's nothing you're thinking of to fix the problem other than reaching for Visine? I learned a little something from an eye doctor that I think comes into play here and I'm going to share it with you. Now your eyes have various ways to compensate and flushing your eyes is of course one of the key defenses your body has. Now we all react differently to irritants but there's one biological factor at play that you may not have considered. Our eyes, and specifically the edges of our eyelids, the pink part that's near your eyelashes, play a big role in lubricating your eyes. I have to say out loud, I'm not an expert at this, but I'm going to share what the eye doctor recommended to me. And it is to make sure that the ducts on those edges that provide the moisture to lubricate your eyes are functioning well. She did an eye inspection of me and what she mentioned is that my ducts, you know, that are in that pink area of your eyelids can get clogged or blocked. I'm not talking about that sand in the corner of your eye, but the actual eyelid rims. I find this is especially true when pollen counts are high and also when I irritate my eyes by wiping salty sweat from my face. When I became aware of this, I learned to lean into the mirror and gently pull down my eyelid. And you could see these little blobs of what looks to be like waxy plugs and or debris over the ducts. You can actually see them. And it means when that crust has formed or debris is there that your eyes are not getting lubricated.
Now, some people, like me, this was what she was actually talking about in my case, that wax that comes out of those ducts, there is a natural oil to lubricate your eyes too, gets thick and gummy and it actually plugs the ducts. So it can be both the debris and the wax that's acting. It just means your eyes are not being lubricated. The remedy, as she explained it to me, was to warm my eyes with a hot compress and gently clean them. So what I do is I take a clean washcloth, and I always keep one in my downstairs bathroom. I saturate it with the hottest water I can stand from the sink, and I hold it to my face over my eye socket. You could do both or one eye at a time. And I just hold it there. What she said to me is that hot will melt those wax deposits and allow them to flow freely and it also uh, clears up the, the debris. What she suggested to me, and she told me to be very careful about this and I'm going to pass it along to you, is you then take your lower lid and just gently pull it down and wipe it with a very, very, very light touch just the surface of that pink ridge. Now, obviously, I'm not an eye doctor and I don't want you to do damage. You could scratch your cornea and all these other things. She trusted that I knew, common sense-wise, not to go gouge in there and destroy my eyes. She emphasized feather-light touch. You're just kind of wiping that rim off and it clears all that debris out. She said this serves a number of functions, the hot compresses. Sometimes the ducts get the ducts, not ducts, ducts. <laughs> get gunked up with the waxy discharge and the hot compress melts the oily secretion and allows it to melt away. And then that lubrication becomes lubrication to your eyes. It also allows you to warm the surface areas around your eyes and that tends to relieve the puffiness which seems to be a water collection in the tissue what I've noticed is when I do these hot compresses if my eyes are swollen that kinda dissipates then what she suggested is you close your eye and you wash the area especially your eyebrows and what she said is it's if you could take a microscope and look, you'll find dust particles and pollen particles get collected on those surfaces and simply the act of washing your eyes off with warm water, not hot water, warm water, will clean that area and will relieve you of irritants. Now eventually what happens when you open those ducts up and clean them up is your eye gets to lubricating better and your eyes will feel better. So there's a Kevin moment here. We all know our bodies and probably can use proper common sense upon considering this and taking action with your eyes. The doctor verbally coached me on this and I trusted and trusted that I understood here the direction that she gave me and that I'd be able to do this at home. As to if you should do that, that's not for me to say. Let me count the ways for how this can go wrong. You could use a cloth that scratches something and further irritates your eye. For whatever reason, you choose water temperature that's too hot and you burn your skin. 
I think you get where I'm going here. This is a borderline medical process and I'm no way qualified to tell you how to do this. My suggestion is when you go to your next appointment for eye care, discuss it with them. Ask them for instructions. My doctor told me that my dry, irritated eyes were a result of computer screens, clog ducts, and possibly other things. And she gave me the directions. And I'm just sharing it so you know that this is something that doctors sometimes tell you and you go get your own device. Don't take advice from a beekeeper about how to do a medical process. <laughs> you only have two eyes and you need to make sure you're right with what's comfortable. I simply just had to say that out loud so that you don't feel like I'm portraying myself as a doctor, even though I played one on TV. End of Kevin moment. So whether working bees has anything to do with it, I find that if I wake up with uncomfortable eyes, I do that hot compress approach. And I do believe that even if you forego the process of wiping your eyelid rim and just put hot compress over your eye and wash your eye area, that that is simply served the purpose sometimes for me. And, you know, don't forget to employ a form of hygiene in the apiary. A clean water bucket to wash your hands after hive inspection. Rinsing your hive tool of res residuals. Simply washing your face with clean water here and there may limit the irritations. It would not be too complicated to consider working in a washing station into your hive inspection plan if you suffer from eye irritation. Okay. You know... Uh, before I put this topic to bed, I did discover something that I had to look up, so a Kevin moment. In the beginning, I said you would put two and two together. It dawned on me that I said this out loud, and if you know me, I kind of stumble across these things and wonder, you know, what does that actually mean? Commonly, the assertion is, if you as a regular person added two plus two, you come up with four. Just about every being on the planet who has learned math can get to the point and that is the point. It's patently obvious. And whatever you're talking about, when you say put two and two together, you're saying that you have no worry that people are going to understand that concept. Everyone ought to know what you're talking about. What impresses me when I look that up to say what did it actually mean in the background is how old this notion is. This has been used as a vehicle for expressing simplicity as far back as the 1600s. Isn't it curious to know that it's been around that long? End of Kevin moment. Roundtable number four, Asian Giant Hornet, 2021. We know from the sensationalism last year that the Asian Giant Hornet, aka Murder Hornet, established a beginning presence in Washington State, United States, and that this year they were going to have to continue the quest to locate any nests that got established and look to eradicate them. The Washington State Department of Agriculture has reported that they spotted a few specimens in the wild and they reported this week that they were able to tag a few of them and now they are prowling the area to see if they can detect where the hornets flew off to. The radio tags in use have a two-week lifespan so they have a defined window where they can scan the neighborhood and hopefully find and destroy the nest. It would really be great if they could stay ahead of the hornets and not allow them to get established. And I think this is the year that's going to be the turning point. 
The bad news is they had hoped to get this done last year and as suspected they missed some so now there are active nests and the job is bigger. It felt somewhat deflating in 2020 to know that they probably left vestiges of colonies in place last year and would have to pick up the quest in 2021. But given there does not appear to be a lot of news coming out about it, maybe it's wishful thinking that the problem is not raging and they could take care of it for 2022 and get another crack at isolating the problem. If you happen to be curious about where this is taking place, to track it on a map, it is not surprising to learn that the discovery appears to be about two miles or so from the hot location from last year, which was Blaine, Washington, in Whatcom County. If you want to visualize this on map, consider the farthest upper left corner of the United States at the border of British Columbia, Canada. For those who know the Northwest, it is in the general vicinity of Mount Baker. The Washington State Department of Agriculture is working with their counterparts across the border because it's so close to Canada to set traps in that area and survey if and where the hornets are to continue to be vigilant for total eradication. Over time, they've gotten organized there to deploy traps across the landscape in a collection between big ag officials, private citizens, and other collaborators. Everybody's got a little skin in the game, and it seems that they'll have to track this down, this particular lead that we started with, while trying to keep their eye on their safety net and see if they can keep it from getting out of the perimeter they established. But, you know, truthfully, I'm surprised it took this long into the season what are we in late August, to have discovered the presence of the hornets, which means, I think, that's a good win. That's a good sign. That's a good omen because that means they haven't proliferated all over the place because they have so many people looking for them there. And if they're just now discovering it, then maybe there's an errant nest here or there, but it's not like they've gotten entrenched. I compare that to the spotter and lanternfly we saw come over from Pennsylvania into New Jersey. They're everywhere. They're everywhere. Here's hoping to happy hunting for those folks out there in Washington. I'll have a link in the show notes to a story where state entomologists can confirm the first live Asian hornet sightings of 2021. Round table number five. This one's called A Theory. It's about queen pheromones. In beekeeping, there are a few questions I like to chew on, to play with, to share with others, to see how creative they are. We just actually talked about one of those examples recently, washboarding. What do we think is going on there? The other is charged queen cells. The question at hand is, why does the queen lay eggs in a queen cup? Why in her right mind would she do that? What's her motivation? There's a lot of different plausible theories out there. During the swarm prevention talk I gave at EAS, this topic was passed by in the presentation. Why does a queen lay in a queen cup? And well, wouldn't you know, someone stopped over after the talk and asked if I had ever heard, heard of the theory that it's pheromone driven. Centered with the queen 
The suggestion is this. The queen is in contact with her court and her pheromones are distributed out amongst the colony. They are, of course, distributed to the colony, but in one way we might not think of. They are distributed back to her because she's part of the colony. The bees that come in contact with her to groom her, to feed her, to take care of her requirements, distribute the scent back to her when it comes round the other way because they're in contact with the bees that got passed out in the beginning. Pulling on this thread, what if that ceased to happen? What if the queen, in contact with other bees throughout the colony, is not getting signals that her scent is out there on the bees that she's mingling with? Is that a possible precursor for her to think, I'm not putting out enough pheromone, there must be something wrong with me. I'm going to go lay eggs in queen cups. That's a possible theory. I find that kind of interesting. I've heard some of this before with the different pheromone therapy or theories or whatever, but this one was a first, I think. Now, in this notion, the person said she read about it from a research paper that compels the queen to seek out a queen cup and create a daughter, but I have another idea that I read recently. It had to do with the structure of the nest in the spring. Think about the way that you would hopefully have the world work. Bees are up against the inner roof right out of winter. The beekeeper, being the beekeeper, does a reversal and puts the bees into the bottom box. Spring forage starts. They load the top box with the honey dome. The queen is going to come up into that top box to lay because she's an egg-laying machine when the forage is on. She encounters the honeydome. That pushes her down into the bottom of the second box as the nectar starts to fill that top box. Where does a queen typically lay swarm cells? In the bottom margins of the top box. You ever notice that? She's not down on the bottom board. And a lot of people say she's not down there because sometimes the cool air comes in in the spring and that keeps her from being down there. But she could lay at the bottom margins of the frames in the top box. So why is the queen laying eggs in the queen cups there? Because the forage is loading nectar, honey, pollen in that top box as they build the honey dome and that naturally has the queen down in that area and she's laying eggs like a fool. So another theory. That's an interesting one. And I love exploring this stuff. And if you have any ideas of why the queen lays in a queen cup to get replaced, you send a note. We'd like to hear it. Kevin at bkcorner.org. Round table number six. How many licks... When I was a kid, there was a commercial on TV for Tootsie Pop lollipops. Mr. Turtle, how many licks does it take to get to the Tootsie Roll Center of a Tootsie Pop? I never made it that far. Ask Mr. Owl. Mr. Owl, how many licks does it take to get to a Tootsie Roll Center of a Tootsie Pop? Let's find out. A one, a two, a three, crunch, a three. How many licks does it take to get to the Tootsie Roll Center of a Tootsie Pop? The world may never know.
If it's not clear, the premise of the commercial was that it's difficult, if not impossible, to tell how many licks it takes to get to the soft candy center of one of the lollipops. More on that in a moment. What does it have to do with beekeeping? Mr. Beekeeper, how much honey can I expect to get from a frame of honey? <laughs> like how many licks, there sure are a lot of answers to that question. How much honey? Honey is contained in the cells of a frame. Over the many years, I have repeated the value that has been told to me, but in truth, I have never seen the yield that is professed from the, air quotes, experts. If you read about this in books, there are references that have come to the conclusion that you can get six to eight, pounding, six to eight pounds of honey yield from a medium frame and around 10 to 11 pounds from a deep. I think sometimes, as educators, we are guilty of repeating dogma about these things. And this one in particular is always kind of not measured up in practice for me. And I'll take some time in the future to get a more accurate count. So recently, I had the opportunity to gain some data, and I wanted to share it with you. The good news is, and the bad news is, the reference point I'm going to talk about is a little skewed, and I'll explain. So here's the deal had a frame in one of our six frame hives that was sitting in position six. Our six frame poly boxes by design are a little wider than conventional six frames. By that I mean they have a little deviation of space so you could put a divider in the middle of that box and use it as a queen castle with three frames on one side and three frames on the other. Now I've talked about this dynamic in the past and I've learned to compensate by putting a shim, aka a follower board, in that open slot that closes the gap and maintains the bee space. Therein lies the rub. If you don't have a spacer in that gap, then of course the bees can build that outside face of the frame into the gap, and in this case, for the hive I was working with, they did just that. I had a to-do to go into all of my six-frame equipment, and in every box, place a spacer in any of those gaps to make sure that this problem was solved once and for all. In doing so, some of the frames that were too wide because the bees used the space had to be mitigated. So given we just did a honey extraction, we had some fully drawn comb at our disposal that we could use to swap out. I did a few replacements and I want to talk about one particular frame illustratively. I pulled a fully drawn deep frame that was capped on both sides. The first side was fully capped and the capping was mm, quarter inch out past the face of the top bar. Contextually this means that the cells were sufficiently deep across the full face of the frame and there were no waves or dips that would result in a deficient amount of honey on that side of the frame. The other side, completely different, quite different. Because of the conditions I expressed earlier, the face of the comb was haphazard. In spots there were big bulges and protrusions that were out as much as one inch wider than conventional what will happen with the bees when they're storing honey is they obviously will build the cells deeper and they'll build it into the space that's available to them 
and this comb had excess honey stored on the one face which is relevant to what I'm about to get to so full frame of honey does it have 10 to 11 pounds of honey in it not including the wax in the frame itself survey says no I pulled that single frame of honey and did a crush and strain with it using a knife I cut the comb from the frame and personally with my fingers and hands smashed all the comb to extract every last drop of honey in the end the honey that strained out filled a single five pound jar and a single two pound jar so how many licks does it take to get to the center of a lollipop well we don't know about that but I could tell you that a full-size deep frame with honey literally bulging out of the sides is seven pound jars <laughs> is this a surprise not really I suppose there's probably some who will say the density of honey changes by the type of honey and blah 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 but I've been kind of trying to pay attention to this and I found that a medium super with 10 full frames has been yielding somewhere between 40 and 60 pounds and not the conventional book method of 60 to 80 as some might profess. Now I suspect that each box is going to be different and you have to account for how the frames are set into the hot body. What I'm alluding to is what I just talked about a moment ago. If you space the frames a bit further apart, the bees will draw deeper cells and they will hold more honey. That means frame by frame there will be more stored and you will be on the upper range of the volume. That's why it's 40 to 60 or 60 to 80. It also matters whether you did 10 frames in the top box or 9 frames because obviously with 9 frames they can build deeper into the space. I guess there's one smidge of a Kevin moment and that is the rule of thumb wherever it originated from might have had a different take on the weight one would assume that when they say a deep frame will yield 10 pounds of honey when extracted they meant the honey only I suppose over the time the messages could have been clouded over through a game of telephone in the beginning someone might have said the entire frame the frame the wax and the honey, if you weigh it, is about 10 to 11 pounds. But dummy me, I didn't weigh the actual frame. I weighed the honey that came out of the frame. End of Kevin moment. The takeaway is I'm going to start massaging my process of how much honey in the count of frames is needed. And this is often a consideration when, taking, when talking about honey stores for overwintering. Because if you say that a single deep is 10 pounds, 10 to 11 pounds, and you need 60 pounds to overwinter, then that means six frames. But is that right? I, I'm going to go the other way. Um, I've had six frames of capped honey both sides in deeps, and the bees have had more than enough honey. So I think that 60 to 80 pound moniker that comes from the mid-Atlantic region out of the Merrick guides of old is probably very conservative and they can get by but I still see no harm in over allocating for the bees just to make sure that that errant season where something could happen that they need more storage they're gonna have it so new math if I'm to do that is 42 pounds 18 pounds short 
if one is to take into consideration that the capped honey in the brood frames weighs that. Now, there's another aside for how many frames you need to overwinter, which is the honey that is down in the bottom box and that fat band in a fat and happy hive of honey that goes across a lot of the brood frames. I bet when you weigh the frames, six frames plus the excess honey that's down into the brood chamber itself, you probably end up with 60 pounds. What I know is that in the past seven pounds per frame notwithstanding, if we go into winter with six frames of capped honey on both sides, the bees have more than enough. Final note, 678. That's how many licks it takes to get to the center of a Tootsie Pop on average. You had to know that someone did an experiment to get that answer. And I think they did it both by people licking and also they had a machine lick. <laughs> they did that, I don't know. But someone did it. And for the everyday run of the mill Tootsie Pop, they've decided that it takes 678 licks because apparently there's other kinds of Tootsie Pops and they're different. 678, young man. That's the answer for the boy. Round table number seven, I call this one EAS goodies. That's a hodgepodge of things. You know, when you go to a conference, you can't help but buy something. And this year, I think the most interesting thing I found, even though I don't wear gloves generally, is these gloves that I have in my hand. If you're familiar with an Ultra Breeze suit or any of the three-layer mesh suits, this year at this show, I found a pair of gloves in my size where the bottom is canvas of the palm and the fingers, but the top and the cuffs are made of the three-layer mesh. First time I've ever seen this type of glove, it's a size 12. They're not very expensive, and I would suspect that in due time, these will become widely available in all the catalogs. Uh, yeah, try them on, think they're pretty neat, in the next couple weeks I will use them. I find that during the dearth the bees are a little more feisty, and especially if I'm doing extensive uh, hive inspections, I, I tend to wear gloves, especially too when things are sticky and you're cutting off comb that has honey and such. That's the one thing that does concern me about these is getting honey all over them. With nitrile gloves, you can tear them off and throw them away, and, you know, as much as I hate to do that, I try to use them quite a bit. Yeah, I'm all over the place. Next thing I have in my hand is an uncapping fork. We've decided that the best tool to use for uncapping honey is an uncapping fork. Uh, just every time you have these pile-up tools that we've tried over the years just to test and see which ones we liked, We've ultimately settled on the uncapping forks. I bought two of them to supplement the one cheap crappy one that we've had forever. And then I went to another booth and saw one for a couple bucks and I'm holding it here in my hand. It's got a wooden handle and stainless steel and, you know, capping forks are capping forks. The only difference really is kind of how far they stick out from the handle and the curve. And every once in a while, for whatever reason, you grab one and it just feels right in your hand. And as inexpensive as they are, they're like six, seven bucks sometimes. They're invaluable when you're going to spend an hour or more with your quality time, uh, you know, uncapping frames. So I think it's a good place to experiment. I have a queen marking device. 
paid all of about four dollars for it you know the kind with the soft foam that plunges up through a tube with a mesh in the story I told last time I broke the one that I had before in one of the packets I got a pocket guide to honeybee health Division of Agricultural Research and Extension from the University of Arkansas this is a really nice little guide there's honeybee health I'm guessing coalition maybe in here and they talk about different brood diseases uh, pests small hive beetle wax moth ants and they give you little primers on all of that stuff including uh, sack brood foul brood European and American chalk brood stone brood and all of those things it's just a nice little pocket guide that was here and um, it's provided by honeybee health and USDA and U of A uh, there's a couple other things nice EAS t-shirts this year they only have a limited number but you know when you sign into the conference you typically get these little pennants that hang off of your tag and you know you get master beekeeper if you're one of those speaker you get life member well this year I have a special one here in my hand there's a in crowd that plays Yahtzee on the last day or throughout the conference and if you're lucky enough to be in the right place in the right time you get voted in to be able to play Yahtzee and yeah we did a round or so if you get a Yahtzee you get a special banner which I'm holding here in my hand it's purple I thought that was kind of a fun little aside as part of it of course I'm not the Yahtzee king like Bob Kloss who didn't want to play but won the whole tournament so there you have it EAS goodies uh, yeah there's a couple other things that that we purchased along the way and when time comes I'll talk about them but these gloves they're pretty cool look for them in a beekeeping catalog next year I'm positive that they will become popular that's it for roundtable is going to go to topic number one call this one tis the season it is the season for feeding bees Somewhere on Source is a collection of articles from the late Walter Wright and recently a video about feeding bees that I encountered reminded me of something I saw a long, long time ago that has now bubbled to the surface. Walter had a short piece on how to feed bees through impregnating comb with a sugar water solution. In his day, if my recollection was right, he was using permacomb. Permacomb is a bit of an oddity nowadays, but to my knowledge, you could still buy it if you were so inclined. It is, quote-unquote, the perfect frame because it's perfectly drawn comb made entirely of plastic. Very similar to, say, better comb, but it was all plastic. Yeah, permacomb is not the point of this topic, but it is relevant in what Walter was trying to accomplish back in the day. He was looking to see if he could save a step for the bees by preloading the cells with sugar syrup. Now the video I spoke of had Walt demonstrating how he solved the problem. He had the permacone laying horizontally in a tub full of sugar solution and he was using this container with strategic holes punched in the bottom. He moved the container which was filled with sugar water solution back and forth over the floating permacomb and the liquid raining out of the holes he drilled 
through force of gravity were dropping onto the cell and filling each of the cells. Why wouldn't he just dunk the whole frame? The experiment he was working on was an attempt to solve the problem of getting the cells filled while overcoming the surface tension that was preventing the sugar solution from getting into the cells. So if you took a frame and you submerged it in water, the tension of the air holding in the cells would prevent the water from entering. He solved the problem through the force of the water falling into the cells. So he declared success, but I've not heard of this practice taking hold in any way. That is, until recently. I encountered a video of a beekeeper experimenting with an alternative approach to feed bees using a similar, but different process. In Walt's work, he said there was no way to dunk the frame to get it filled, hence the reason he came up with the method I just described. Coming to the content of the video I saw recently, the origin is credited to Golden Legion Honey. It's a YouTube channel out of Texas. On that channel, you could find a demonstration about the technique that I'm about to discuss. So I found two videos on the topic where the beekeeper is experimenting with methods to fill a wax space frame, just the same way that we all use, with the liquid. As we just covered, because of the surface tension phenomena, one can't simply dunk a frame and expect the cells to exchange the air inside for liquid. The air gets trapped in the cells and the water will not replace it, even if you just hold it in there. That being said, this beekeeper was experimenting with a few different approaches and he was able to succeed in a different way than Walter simply by adjusting his dunking procedure. He took the frame and dunked it in the water and then used an agitation motion which caused the air to dislodge. And I'll take a moment to expand on that. He had a five gallon pail filled three quarters of the way up with the sugar solution. I want to say it was one to one solution, meaning one part water, one part regular cane sugar dissolved in the liquid. He grasped the frame from one of the short ends and plunged it into the pail and vigorously moved it up and down. In some ways, he kind of held the frame at a little bit of an angle, so the side he was concentrating on filling was facing up in a, in a little bit, in some manner, and that helped to free the air from the cells. When he plunged it, he shook it back and forth, withdraw, withdrawing it, plunging it, withdrawing it, plunging it, and eventually he was able to successfully get the liquid to exchange for the air. He would concentrate on one side and then flip to the other side and tilt it so that side was somewhat facing up and continued the motion until the sides were full. The thing that he unlocked was the up and down motion while tilting the frame succeeded in releasing the air from the cells and he could move the frame up and down until he did not see any more bubbles escaping and of course all the cells were full with liquid when he pulled it out of the water. When he was satisfied that he filled what he could, he withdrew the frame, flipped it over, and plunged the other half in the water, repeating the process until the 
full wax frame from end to end was loaded with sugar water solution. And by all intent and purposes, it seemed with a little bit of practice, he was able to achieve the objective. And after holding up the fully plunged frame over the bucket to let any of the excess liquid drain off, he was able to take that frame, move it into a full-size colony, put it right in the hive box. I'm almost at the point of taking some time to evaluate this idea, but there's one additional thing to cover, and that is his further experimentation with an alternative method to plunge and shake. Along the way, he shared in that video another approach which I'll term, he termed, like a washing machine approach. He thought of, for a period of time it was a better approach. He would take the frame, plunge it, and instead of moving it up and down, he would twirl it back and forth in the manner of an agitator in a washing machine. Flip the side up, turn it over, flip the side up, turn it over, flip the side up, and he just kept turning it back and forth. When he was doing that, at the time, he seemed really smitten that he may have found a better way to fill the frames. But my guess is, and this is only anecdotal, he abandoned it because later, in a second video that I found, he showed the method again and he was back to the plunge method. And you could tell by the continuity that the second video was older than the first one. So hopefully you could picture what I share and envision the message used. And now, I could kind of step back and think about, out loud, how, how is this technique? Is it a good idea? And I did deliberate, as you would imagine. And in no particular order, these are some comments and evaluations of the thought. He used a five-gallon bucket, which seems logical. Everybody's got one. And by my way of thinking, you know, it would let you implement this technique whether you wanted to use a medium frame or a deep frame. I had a moment where I was wondering whether a deep frame would fit in a bucket. So somewhere along the line, I grabbed a deep frame in a five-gallon bucket. And yes, there's plenty of room. Next, he seemed to be using a one-to-one -one solution for feeding. It makes me wonder, if you did this with a two-to-one sugar syrup, would the density of the solution go into the cells given the viscosity? I'm not sure about that. I suppose if I had to place a bet, I think it would work, but you'd have to trust but verify. On another point, in the video, he was feeding in the bee yard. In fact, he was pulling frames from a box, dipping them, and then putting them on a colony. My sense, good idea and bad idea all at the same time. Now, I don't think it'd be practical to fill frames with liquid in place A and then put them in a box and transport them to place B. In some respects, liquid in cells that has no ripening, I'm just thinking this isn't a good idea. Um, experience tells me that transporting wet frames is problematic. You should, you know, should you bump a frame, hit a bump while driving somewhere, it's not hard to imagine a lot of spillage. So that leaves the idea that you should be doing this in the bee yard. Is that a good idea? Even he, somewhere along the line, I think, imagined that robbing could be an issue. And 
just by watching the video, he was attracting a lot of bees where he was operating. And it stands to reason that if you're feeding bees because they need to be fed and therefore they are hungry, they're going to be there in your face. And some were landing in the solution and at some point he was fishing them out so they didn't drown. Good on him, but bad from a process standpoint. Now looking at it with even more scrutiny, I have to look at this more holistically and step back. Does it fit with the way the world works? By my vantage, it looked like he had full frames of liquid stored in the cells. So from that standpoint, yep, mission accomplished. Yet, I don't know why, I feel a little unsettled about it. And here's where the dissonance is. Given the solution was put there by a beekeeper and not the bees, how do you think the colony's going to react to it? I would like to think, as would we all, that they will see it as a gift. That they will ripen it and cap it or consume it. And you would have sugar, water, funny, honey for the bees. Well, sort of. If it's one-to-one, -one, conventional wisdom is that bees eat one-to-one -one for carbohydrate and they store two-to-one for food. Now, I heard at EIS that you can feed them one-to-one, -one, and if they want to do storage, they will dry it, but you end up with less honey because it's less concentration, and it takes them more work to do it. Is that a good thing? Hmm. guess it depends. I will say that in the video, I think he alluded that the bees were hungry and that he was trying to feed them, so I'm not complaining about what he did. I'm just thinking about what happens if the bees decide they want to store this and dry it out. I'm going to step back even further. What of the technique? Is there something about it to consider? The technique of the dunk. He was using a five gallon pail filled three quarters of the way. He was doing the dunk. That setup alone is probably not efficient. You know, you've got to carry the liquid out and do all that stuff. Plus you're dunking the frame and you're only covering it halfway. I think about it a different way. What about a common Home Depot or Lowe's tote? Food grade, of course. You put the sugar water in and it's rectangular. Instead of a bucket and holding the frame horizontal, you hold it vertically. In that manner, you could hold the ears in your left and right hand, dip the entire frame to the top bar, and then shake it. The natural upward slant of the cells may help to evacuate the air, and it would not matter whether it was a deep or a medium or some other form factor. And I would think that you could tilt the frame towards you or away from you, depending on which side you want to fill to help it out, but maybe doing it horizontally instead of dipping it vertically would be more efficient. So technique-wise, that would be an interesting experiment to see whether that worked or not. Two more impressions to share and then I'll put this away. The first one is, what of the bees? What do you think they're going to think about this and consider this? Is it in harmony with nature? It's worth exploring. This is, this is, I guess, the way I think of it. A bee flies out to a flower. They collect the nectar in their crop. They bring them back the nectar to the hive, and they put it inside a cell. Now, this approach 
the liquid automatically appears. It seems to me that a few things are not necessarily equal in the beekeeper provided liquid. The bee in the first method having taken part in the natural collection process I think is going to somehow impart bee enzymes and also may play a role in how exactly the liquid gets placed into the cell. It might do it differently. There might possibly be some other unforeseen touches to the transaction. The other thing about it, obvious, is the foraging bee also decided, using bee logic, whatever that is, where the payload's deposited. Now contrast, we, trying to be helpful, we've circumvented the whole process. Beside the point that the liquid in the cell could be missing something imparted from the bees, what of the impact to the colony? Let's consider that. What if they didn't want it there? What if it wasn't the time to do that? What if they don't have the workforce to dry it out? What if the moisture in the colony overwhelms the ecosystem in the colony and it starts to result in mold or too much moisture that messes up brood rearing or some other colony activity? An unforeseen consequence could go on with that but here in our desire to be helpful we possibly have screwed up things inside the ecosystem and disrupted disrupted the apple cart so that's one line of thinking in my head then I swing the other way maybe it's a great way to feed bees during the dearth and this bounty given to every hive in your yard could thwart robbing because they'd all be fat and happy with all the nectar they need and think of all the labor you would save it could solve problems for beekeepers who struggle to find hives for their water. I think about Arizona where the bees get aggressive going out to try and find water sources. Well, in this manner, you could load them up with water all they could take. So what about putting water out for the bees? You could fast forward the option when you have weeks and weeks of dry weather. Just load them up with water. It'll either evaporate it because it's dry or they'll drink it down. One other question I have is, if you did this, if you took this and stuck it inside a hive, notwithstanding the fact that you made sure you drained it off and didn't drip water, nectar all over and bang it around and get brood wet and all these things, would the bees move this liquid? Bees do stuff sometimes to move things around. Maybe they don't like where you put it. There's all kinds of interesting things that would come from trying this technique. And I'm not saying it's bad, good, or indifferent. I'm just trying to think of all the what comes after you figured out how to fill the frame. It's probably akin to a feeder. If they didn't, you know, they go up in the top feeder. Let's say you have one of them. They take the liquid down and they bring it down and store it. If you put a frame in and they didn't want it there, would they treat it like a feeder, empty it, and bring it over to the place where they wanted it? And what of the labor of the bees dealing with the thing that you gave them? They had no plan to deal with this. See, everything I think has a plan to it. And the bees that are inside the hive through their jobs that are preordained, so to speak, now all of a sudden somebody's got to take care of all the sugar nectar water in the hive that wasn't there before. 
And the bees that move on to take care of that, where did they come from? They had to be probably assigned to doing something else. It, it has a, a certain pinch of a Jurassic Park moment. Your scientists were so preoccupied with whether they could or not that they did not stop to think if they should. One of those things. Now, me personally, I love thinking about this, running through the what-if scenarios. I, I'm not planning to do this anytime soon. I have conventional feeders. I'm just going to stay the course. But it is an interesting idea to have in the vault to think about. And I'm wondering if anybody's tried it. Come across this video. It's been out there a little while. So, as usual, if you have any comments, once again, do tell. Kevin at bkcorner.org is where you can send your impressions. And of course, if you want to watch the origin videos that I was reading about, talking about, head over to the show notes for this episode. There'll be links there. Seems as good a time as any to turn to the local hive report. All the hives are moving along on the property. You know, before I go through talking about actual hives, how to share a notion about general sentiment towards your hives. It's a little bit like a Goldilocks principle. Sometimes the hives are not doing so well. That's the way you feel about the world. Sometimes they're okay. And other times you think, man, things are really going well right now. Do you have this sentiment? I, I always stand at the entrance of the bee yard when I walk in and I have a general impression. When I'm looking at all my colonies right now, everything's kind of in the middle of the lane. I think they're all doing fine. I'm a little worried about pad number four, which is the cedar hive that has the flow hive on it because I haven't done anything to review the mites in that particular hive. Everything else has been buttoned up. And everything else seems to be reasonable sized colonies. There's a couple things that I have gone through my head through different research that I've been doing lately and I'll share them in a moment, but I wanna talk about the nucleus hives. This year I've made four new hives with the impression of growing them up to be production colonies for next year. Every one of them started with queens that we grafted and only one of them is an actual grafted queen. The rest of them we put grafted queens in and for whatever reason they didn't like them. But the grafted queens laid enough eggs that eventually turned to larvae that they made new queens of. So they requeened themselves, all three of them, which means they've gotten off to a slower start than I would have preferred. From an impression standpoint, Goldilocks, I didn't think any three of those had a, a good shot. They all seem rather small. They, they're just not doing their thing. They took a long time. One of them requeened itself twice. But this week I went through those hives just to see where they were at and I was going to make a decision Am I going to join these hives together? And what am I going to do with the resources in them? What are What is the prognosis sitting at the end of August to carry them through and get them to six over six uh, polystyrene hives so that I can overwinter them? Fact of the matter is they kind of surprised me. I went in with the low and brought them back up to medium. All of them had working queens and all of them had brood that had been fully capped and several of them were merging and everywhere that 
there was brood required, meaning space that they had cleaned out and prepped for brood, there were eggs and brood in all stages. That means to me that in the next couple of weeks, the population in these colonies will grow. Now, every one of them is in stalled state right now. They should be working on two boxes, and they're all in six frame. The other thing that was going on dynamically with these is that I just didn't have any comb. Because I cleaned all the comb out that I've cruddy, crappy old comb, put a pin in that, um, I, I don't have anything but foundation. Now the interesting part, if you go back to the previous episodes, is I did build a, a couple honey supers and had full boxes that I harvested that had frames. And I've been able to take that and distribute those in all of these colonies. So if I look at the colony on number two, that's the only one that got shortcutted. Is that a word? Shortcutted? <laughs> that that is a six frame all drawn comb on the bottom with six frame on the top I added a second box to all of these and it has foundation now some of the boxes that I had put foundation in the bees started made an attempt before the dearth came so you might see a patch that's as big as a melon where they started to build it out on the wax foundation but the sides and bottom are all still wax foundation and the opposite side which was to the outside of the box doesn't have anything i had three or four maybe even five frames that had that start of wax but nothing built out in fact one of them they got it deep enough that they were storing nectar in it i took all of those put them in one box and put them over top of hive number two which is the strongest hive of the four figuring if anybody's going to draw that comb and get that colony built out it's that one and i'm going to have to feed it feed it feed it and it also has carpets of brood in frames three and four in the bottom six and they will soon be new bees that have the workforce from september and october to build out for a november close that's plain and close super close but yet, one thing that Bob Kloss keeps telling me is nukes will build like nobody's business now. I don't think that's true at this time of year. But I have, with, you know, you have to stay on top of the feeding, been able to feed colonies and get them through to a full double stack, usually five over five. So we'll see. This is a learning experience for pad number two. On the back row... The temporary setup, I put up uh, one of those metal temporary benches and have two nukes sitting on it. I added six frames and six frames on both of those hives of drawn comb. These are the ones that came out of the 10 frame box and a 5 frame nuke that I harvested. Also down in the bottom were a frame and a frame on the one on the left and a single frame on the one on the right of foundation. I pulled those out and I put drawn comb in there. So if you think about the one on the left, it had four frames of working bees 
Some of it had fully capped comb, some of it was brewed in all stages with some emerging and so on. And they were packed. Every frame had lots of bees on it. Now the queen has the other two frames to lay in that I gave them with drawn comb. And I'm feeding it, plus they have six frames above. It's kind of a weird thing to have them all of a sudden have all this space. But as I'm feeding them a lot, I'm hoping they see that as the opportunity to, one, lay more brood, come out of the dearth, and we're starting to see the goldenrod and such pop here in our area. And I've also noticed, as a sidebar, I went over to the Russian hive, which was sitting on pad number eight. It had two deeps, and I had a medium honey super that had two frames on it and it had some brood in it and the other eight frames were foundation that was in the beginning of August I looked at it yesterday that box actually belongs to another beekeeper they gave me this box as a swarm earliest in the season well darn if they didn't build out the entire thing and they have it stored with honey so I'm gonna do something that I am not used to doing which is I'm gonna go through winter with that box the Russian bees with two deeps and that medium full of honey because I don't know what I would do with that box of honey right now and the other thing is there's apovar on that box and I don't want to take that honey so I'm going to make sure that the bees get fed it and we don't harvest it if that's going on over on pad number eight then that gives me hope at this time of year that with these two nukes with the comb that I've given them, they've got the setup that they need in order to plug these things out. So September will be an interesting exercise, which is feeding those bees and watching to see if stimulating them and also their biological process to get through winter will get them to the state where they'll filled and become a fully functional six over six colony. Hive number two is at a deficit because they've got foundation up in the top. But we'll see. We'll see what happens. Now the other thing that I could do is if the back hives build faster than the front hive, I could swap some resources out of there. So I have a couple options here and there, but I am at a dearth of comb. Now coming back to the pin that I did earlier, am I upset that I got rid of all this old comb? Nope. Would I want to take old comb that I had and put it in here and prop these bees up? No, I don't. I'd rather see them be at a lack than bring that old crappy comb in. In fact, I know that in my swarm trap, I have about six frames of really old crusty brood comb. I had to open it up and tilted sideways and let the air and light flow through because I saw some wax moths in there getting ready to do their thing. I could have taken those frames and given it to the box on two, but I'm not doing it because I don't want to introduce that old crappy stuff in. Now coming back to the rest of the apiary, as I look, all the colonies are in really good shape. They've got big colonies, they're being treated for mites, they have adequate stores nobody's light uh, maybe on number 11 there's a six over six over six polystyrene hive that brood pattern in that box did not look good it was a little shotgun 
I don't know if that's because the queen was closing down. I do have to make a mental note to go back in that hive and see if the queen picked up and if she got a decent pattern. But in the dearth, that, that queen had physically just like put the brakes on and stopped. The rest of the bees are foraging heavy. You could see a lot of work at the entrance. And one of the things that I've done this week is gone through and put on all my guards. My eight frame, eight frame, eight frame polystyrene hives look spectacular. They were started from splits early in the season. They were allowed to build out to two boxes. One of them did not have an entrance guard on it. Those polystyrene boxes come with that hard plastic guard on the bottom. One of them was wide open and my concern was if anybody was going to get picked on in the yard it was going to be that one. Lo and behold when I picked the top box up it must have weighed a hundred pounds. It was full of honey across the top and loaded with bees. When I pulled the bottom box off the bottom board so that you can insert the guard in the front, that box full of bees, full of stores, and I pulled the frame and saw Brood in all stages. Queen's doing great. So now every single box except for the 10 frame polystyrene hive have entrance guards. That one's next. I just got all the way through what I was doing the other day and that's as far as I could get. I have to take the top box off and the bottom box, put the guard on. And you know one of the things about that hive is I've never used the entrance guard that came with it, the plastic one. Actually, it was sitting on a shelf and I found it recently and I wanted to put it back and try it. Now, one of the things I do that's not conventional for winter is I always put a inner cover with a notch over all of my hives. I want a fail-safe exit for the bees in case the bottom gets clogged. The other thing that I did this year when putting the entrance reducers on is I love those metal plates that have the round holes stamped out of them. And in the past what I used to do was take a dovetail saw and slice a slot in the wood and then take the wide rail and squeeze it down into that slot. The metal plates, the thickness of a dovetail saw were perfect and you could slide it down along the front edge of the box and it would set in there and you didn't have to nail it or do any of that. I tried something different this year. I took a metal shear and I cut a notch out where it would have gone down into the wood of the bottom board. And I just ran a strip of blue tape across the outside edge. In the past, um, I've had good a good result with that. Just blue tape, as funny as that sounds, those metal plates down. The good news is the way those, uh, let me describe this thing. It's a flat metal plate made of galvanized steel. That's what I think it's made of. It could be stainless steel, but I think they're galvanized. And someone's taken a pattern like a hole punch that you use for paper to put into a three ring binder and punched a stamped holes all the way across the bottom. So you usually have a one inch swath and then a one inch pattern of holes and the bees walk in and out of all the holes. 
I love these entrance reducers. I know you could use the traditional three-quarter inch one and slide it in. I know you could use wire. I like these metal plates. In fact, they were invented by a beekeeper here that I've interviewed on the podcast, Stan, Stan Wazatowski. He came up with the first ones. He went to a machine shop and had them made, and then someone saw them and started mass producing them. But we had some of the first prototypes of them, and I've been using them for years and years and years. What I like about them is the entrance is really kind of open all the way around, but the bees can't dart through them. So if they wanted to rob, they still have to land and walk through those holes. They can't fly through the holes. And for me, in the wintertime, when I want to close off the hive for winter and allow, you know, prevent the air from moving through, I just take blue tape and tape all the way through and leave about four or five of them open. And then when I want to open it in the spring, I just peel the tape back and slice it off and I could open it one third, two thirds all the way. There's been times when I've gone throughout the entire year and left them on, on some of my colonies. I now believe that in the summertime, when they want full flight, that that's a bit of a, hold on, i got to get through the hole, and I want to give them all the opportunity to come and go they want, so I remove them. But in the past, I have left them on there. So I cut the notch out so that it slides down the face of the front box, makes contact with the bottom board, and then I ran tape across that one inch flat part across the top, and there's enough of an overlap that it sticks to the top of the box above the guard, and it wraps around the side. Now, one of the things I have on several of my hives in the bottom are slatted racks, so I'm really taping to the slatted rack. When you do this, Use proper 3M tape, blue tape. The proper 3M blue tape will not stick to the box. If you use a cheap knockoff Lowe's, Home Depot, Ace Hardware brand, their glue doesn't work the same as the 3M stuff. And you'll find that it sticks to the box and it pulls the paint off. Learn that the hard way. So I went and bought proper 3M painter's tape, the blue tape. And yes, my experience is it holds all winter. It doesn't matter whether it gets wet, cold, it stays there. Last impression that I have that I wanted to share about my colonies is the shape of the colony. Biologically, what the bees are looking for at this time is they're heading to winter and they're building their winter bees. August 8th through October 31st is four cycles of bees. And what I like to see is the bees build a good population and go out and get their stores over top of them so that they push down into the bottom box. That's the traditional by the book way. And there's sometimes when you open a colony this time of year and it's hodgepodge. Bees are up in the top, bees are over to the side, bees are in the bottom box. They're not clustered together down in the center. I'm not a huge fan of manipulating colonies, but in this case, for winter, I would take that mishmash colony and I would restructure the box and put them down in the center of the bottom box and then feed them two to one 
so that they build a honey dome over top of them. I really feel like from an experience standpoint that if you can get the bees centered in the bottom box or at least in the bottom box going into winter then they do better in the cluster to come up into the honey over them versus bees that go into winter with honey all around them and a mishmash they just don't seem organized enough and those colonies struggle a little bit especially on a brutal cold winter I try to advise people who you know I come into contact with that most of the time the bees or self-organize themselves in that manner but if you find that you're going through and you see a little brood in the bottom box on the left side and then you find a little brood in the top box maybe in the center over the left side or whatever it may be I like to pull those boxes apart while it's still warm and this is why I'm saying this now this is the time of year where it's still warm enough that you could do these massive intrusions and not worry about having the hive open pretty soon when you get to September and the leaves are falling and it's cool 60 degrees days that's not a good time to be rearranging your colonies but what I try to do contrary to what the bees are doing is put all the brood together centered down in the bottom I put their pollen to the outside of them and I put the fully drawn nectar you know the dried nectar or the capped honey to the outside in the bottom box I'm gonna move all the capped honey to the bottom and then I'm gonna feed them and hopefully they'll ripen and cap all the honey in the top so early in the season when they're down in the bottom and it starts to get cold and they're on the cluster they're gonna have their open nectar stored down in the bottom with them to feed their brood and they'll be able to move right and left while it's still warm enough on occasional days through November to eat the food but in the heart of winter when they're on the cluster they can move up into the honey stoves and the residual heat they don't heat the inside of the chamber but the residual heat coming off of the bees the top will allow them to come up and warm some of that honey and bring it down into the nest. If there's a little over here and a little over there and a little over there, they, they just are not going to have that same opportunity. So two things, when I walk in, I think about the sentiment of the colonies. Are they low, medium, or high? Obviously, if they're low or medium, I'm going to take whatever is required. And the other thing I'm thinking about right now is, how are my winter bees doing? Are they getting organized? Are they in the proper state? Do they have enough bees? And what do they need to be fed? Are they fat and happy? I'm past the point of mite control because it's too late. I mean, I kind of say that with a knock on wood. If you haven't done your mite stuff, do it now. You might be able to get by, but you should have done it in July and August is what we always tell you. But, you know, as we roll into September, it's kind of late in the game to try and whack the mites. They've already made your entire colony sick if you haven't done something to this point. My treatments have been on since, I want to say, early August when we came back from vacation. A local hive report? Yeah, everything looks good. I got that one hive out at Valley Crest. I spoke to Bob and asked him if he knew anything about it. I haven't been out there to check it. I think uh, next couple days maybe I'll make a run out there and see how it's doing. Just make sure that it has what it needs. 
I'm curious to see also, every once in a while, I want to check in on that field and see what it looks like. Last time we were there, it was astonishing. I'm just curious if the vegetation changed as the season rolls through. There was one last impression that came through. was Last year, I remember, a lot of my colonies all had young, amazing queens. Stuff that we raised. This year, I didn't, as you heard, do very well with that. But I also know that those colonies that were young, first-year queens last year, are now second-year queens. The thing about that is a young queen, at this time, they're going to have a great pattern. They're going to lay a lot of eggs. They're going to do good things for you. A second-year queen, I think, is going to be good, but not as good. Next year... If the colonies didn't swarm and whatever, I, I'm thinking cyclical. I need to do it again. I need to go through and make sure that all of my queens are young going into the summer solstice to make sure that the youngest queens make great winter colonies. That was on my brain this year. I thought we didn't do a spectacular job, struggled at queen rearing. But next year, for sure, we want to get started early. We want to raise a lot of really good queens. And when they show their muster, I'm going to do what I think you should do if you want to just keep that cycle going, is put fresh queens throughout the entire apiary. And that will assure us here that these are going to be good overwinter qualities, colonies, because fresh queens do great at building the, the workforce and so on to overwinter. That's also on my mind. I looked at the apiary and said second year. I'm going to learn whether a second year queen is going to do great and we'll find out if all the hives come through. But when the hives come through last year, I attribute that to really good quality, fresh new queens. And I'm hoping that year two, that karma is still going to be there. We'll see. All, again, they've been doing this since 2008. Still a learning curve. Isn't that kind of neat? Local hive report. Check. Pretty happy with where we stand. And mostly conservatively optimistic for 2022 spring. I think we're in good shape. Well, it seems like this is a place to end it. All's well that ends well. Um... Gearing up for the October visit out to Omaha, getting the presentations prepped, and I'm in, as you just heard, full prep for getting the bees to overwinter. Kind of are looking at the horizon for me lately about doing some more digging on the managementering program that I'm developing about updating the Northwest New Jersey beekeeping site and a bunch of other projects. So no rest for the weary, but Still having fun with the podcast and have to give a shout out, uh, birthday wishes to Danny, Carrie Ann, my twin brother Keith, and my nephew CJ. Birthday season has come once again. Also a little shout out to my cousin Cammy, whose birthday is on the 29th. They say it's your birthday. <laughs> another year gone by and enjoying it hope you like the show look forward to coming back next time for another episode of the beekeepers corner podcast stay well stay healthy everybody we'll talk to you soon 
Thanks for listening. Like our beloved bees, when beekeepers go together, they can accomplish great things. Take care now.